Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome. I'm uh, Mark Ledbury. I'm the director of the Power Institute and the uh, chair of the Art History Department here at the University of Sydney. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to welcome you all here. It's special, um, especially nice to be able to welcome members of the uh, ArtSoc, yeah, the, University of Students, uh, the University of Sydney Student uh, Fine Arts Society, tonight, and uh, uh, many of whom are uh, interested in the visual arts but not actually studying uh, art history. And it's great that there is a lively and uh, a thriving visual arts culture among students at the university as well as in the kind of usual departmental um, spaces. And of course, um, this is one of a very packed program of power talks, lectures, and other events in, um, over this semester. And I uh, wouldn't be me if I didn't um, uh, sort of advertise. So I'm going to um, next week, at the end of next week, um, we're very privileged to have uh, Michael Freed, the great critic and historian, um, who is making his first visit to Australia, and he's going to be speaking um, actually at the, in the Great Hall uh, on um, uh, Thomas DeMand's uh, Pacific Sun. Michael Freed is, I think, at his best when he is focused on one artwork and takes you into all kinds of spaces of that artwork. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. If you haven't registered, it's uh, free to all University of uh, Sydney uh, students, all full-time students, and all University of Sydney alum, and it's a pittance for everybody else. It really is uh, cheap. At, uh, uh, and, and you go to the uh, Seymour Centre site, which is where we do all our registrations. It's very simple, and that's on Friday, the 24th of May. Uh, it starts at 7. Um, on the following Monday, Monday, the 27th of May, uh, another very distinguished uh, intellectual in her own right and happens to be Michael Freed's partner, Ruth Lees, um, who has made a, a, a number of very important studies of affect and what it means, uh, and especially renowned in trauma studies and studies of, uh, in Holocaust studies, in trauma studies. She's a very interesting uh, writer, and she is coming to talk on the erasure of sense violence, affect, and the post-traumatic subject. And that is on Monday the 27th. That talk is at 6 o'clock, our usual time, and is in um, the auditorium down below 101. Again, um, do register. Uh, that's free for absolutely everybody, so um, even more reason to, uh, to go straight from there tonight and, and, and register. So um, we have lots of other stuff coming up, but I, I'll contain myself to those um, two things for the, for the moment. So, um, on to tonight, and uh, we're delighted. We've been very much thoroughly enjoying the visit of Paul Hills and Vivian Lovell uh, here, and uh, Paul's, some of you will have attended Paul's talk last night, a marvellous uh, look at um, Renaissance clothing, uh, shrouding and uncovering. Um, Paul's partner, Vivian, works in a very different area of the art historical enterprise, or the art enterprise, if you like, and uh, we're delighted to welcome her here tonight. She's a very distinguished visual arts curator with a career in public art commissioning, at curating, troubleshooting, putting people together, and she founded uh, her current um, uh, enterprise, Modus Operandi, in 1999 as an independent consultancy having previously been uh, the founder and director of the Public Art Commissions Agency, um, from, uh, which has a 12-year span between 87 and 99. And she is a preeminent champion of public art 
and in the many roles that public art play, uh, plays, environmentally, regeneration work, etc. And, you know, I think in sort of, you know, people always talk about consultants, well, what do they actually do? Well, I think Vivian sort of makes art happen in some ways, gets the heads together that need to be got together for public art to be commissioned, uh, intelligently cited, etc. And she's worked, among many other sites, on the BBC British, uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation's Broadcasting House redevelopment, on sites in Liverpool, including the um, uh, Liverpool Vision uh, project, the Docklands Light Railway, Woolwich Square, the University of Exeter, and, the, um, and Oxford's uh, Radcliffe Observatory Quarter. And she's been a consultant, a report writer to many public arts bodies. And um, before, that's, as, that's in her current role at Modus Operandi, before that, as part of uh, the uh, Public Art Commissions, uh, Commissions Agency, as the founder of that, she worked very heavily with um, uh, large projects like the Cardiff Bay Project, with Birmingham City Council, um, and with St. John's College in Oxford. And she, previous to that, had worked in, um, uh, in um, uh, various sort of, if you like, public authority and uh, public spaces, uh, working for councils, working for arts organisations. Like uh, our current director of the MCA, Lizanne McGregor, she also worked at the very, very, very influential institution, Birmingham's Icon Gallery, which has sort of, in a way, spawned an a generation of extraordinary talents, it's, or nurtured them at least. It's been a, an amazing sort of, uh, I think, crucible of thinking about contemporary art in, its pub in public space. Anyway, um, lest I bore you with too long a list, I, I just wanted to finish. Uh, we had a lovely conversation with uh, Paul and Vivian this lunchtime in which uh, Vivian told us a little more about her, her background. And one of the things she said was that she had also been, one of her first roles was the was a, a history of art teacher at a boys, ca uh, a boys boarding school in, in which she said, I was extremely popular. And uh, uh, the, the, um, the, the rather, I didn't realise it was downside, which is a rather glorious sort of uh, uh, monastic, monastically spawned place in, um, in Wiltshire. Um, anyway, uh, Vivian has proved an extraordinarily generous interlocutor with many of you uh, at lunchtime uh, before this talk. I'm delighted to welcome Vivian uh, Lovell and her talk, as you can see, is entitled Public Art Today from Space Invaders to Placemakers. Please welcome the video. Thank you very much, Mark, and, and thank you very much to the Power Institute and the University for inviting me to speak. It's been a great pleasure meeting students earlier today. Just as an aside to that last career mention, <laughs> there was a whole generation of young men who went on to study art history and commission art for entirely the wrong reasons. <laughs> so, as you know, my background is as an art historian um, with a very strong interest from when I was a student in the social history of art. And my role as Mark too has mentioned, is one of strategist and policymaker, producer, broker of collaborations and so forth. Now in addressing the scope of public art today and specifically the role of the art object contrasted with that of artist placemaking and participatory practice, I should be using examples and case studies, not just projects which I've curated of course, um, but others and presented in, in categories which necessarily overlap to a degree, including some older examples. As Karl Marx said, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it, and that's 
so true of public art. And my standpoint, too, is necessarily conditioned by coming from a tiny island in an overcrowded country in Western Europe, albeit informed by international research and experience. The scope of public art as a generic term is open to increasingly wide interpretation by artists as the field has expanded over recent decades. It's a highly contentious field, and public space, too, is a highly contested term, some people feeling that it's an oxymoron, or indeed that public art is an oxymoron. Its definition has broadened from art outside and art beyond the gallery to include cyberspace and everywhere in between. In the past four decades, there have been changes in fashion, terminology, and areas of activity, from the purchased sculpture place to the site-specific and site-generated artwork, from the integration of art within architecture and landscape to fully artist-designed environments, from the temporary intervention to interdisciplinary collaborations. And at the same time, artists have been seeking, of course, to decommodify the artwork, taking to the land and to the streets with works that could only be witnessed at first hand, not in a gallery or bought or sold. This movement, of course, is rooted in land art and fluxus and situationism and then post-1968 community arts, much earlier than that in Dada. But in the early 1990s, new genre public art, as coined by Suzanne Lacey in the United States, led to relational art, as coined by Nicola Borio, and then issue-based participatory practice or social practice, as described by Claire Bishop recently, more recently, who argued in favor of a higher quality and level of public engagement and aesthetic experience in the, on the part of the participators. Um, so before I show you some images, we, before we have visual gratification, just finish with some bullet points, um, these are some of the issues I want to raise today and some of the areas that I'll be talking about and who are today's patrons. Performative art is, of course, part of the recent trend and indeed a show on this subject, The Space Between Us, opens um, tomorrow at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Now, who is commissioning and why? This field looks rather different from, say, Renaissance patronage, where the state and patrons such as the Medici and the church were, of course, the commissioners. But today we have everybody from a developer to a university to a city council to hospitals, transport authorities and individual patrons, not least art fairs and biennials. Everybody is commissioning public art. Competing motives on the part of these patrons are as diverse as the patrons themselves. And these competing motives and other stakeholders have to be resolved, and it's the role of a curator, somebody in my position, to facilitate and support the artist's vision at the same time as aligning the motives of those involved. But a number of artists, of course, are not waiting to be commissioned. There's a very rich territory of public art out there, which is artists taking to the streets and creating their own projects. And so I'm going to begin with some artist-initiated projects 
including this one, which appeared some 20 years ago and is indeed a sculpture of a shark. This is a real image. It's not a computer-generated image. And this sculpture enters the house of the radio presenter Bill Heiner in Oxford. And it was erected on the 41st anniversary of the Nagasaki atomic bomb as a reminder of the impotence of uh, today's or then today's politics. Extremely controversial. Neighbours complained um, in their masses, um, but the Oxford planners, in their wisdom, allowed it to remain. Also in this field of artist-initiated works, Banksy, uh, who's the well-known graffiti artist in the UK, um, is working, make, making work by stealth as a gift to communities and a comment on their settings and current affairs. And ironically here, the commodified or decommodified artwork is now being re-commodified because people are chipping these works out of the walls and selling them on the open market. So something which is an artist's gesture as street art is, is now commanding high prices. And of course I'm aware of many of the extraordinary public art projects here in the States and saw some excellent street art in, in Melbourne, for example. Continuing in this vein, the French photographer J.R. has been working with communities in Rio de Janeiro to give visibility and identity to communities living in favelas who would not normally be able to express that vision to the outside world. And also within this sector, the work of Rachel Whiteread, 20 years ago, House was created by one of the UK's preeminent artists, a project facilitated by, by an organization called Art Angel. The artist chose to cast the entire interior space of the last in a row of terraced houses due for demolition um, as positive space, as a sculpture, consistent with her practice exploring casting of negative spaces. It was to be a temporary work, but so popular did the work become uh, that Rachel Whiteread won the Turner Prize and a call arose for the work to be permanent. Ha London Borough Tower Hamlets, however, kept their original agreement and the work was demolished, which begs the question of how permanent art should be and would its power have been diminished had it been allowed to remain? Is it more powerful in the imagination or in the memory or in documentation? And perhaps shouldn't we be commissioning more temporary and ephemeral work in the future rather than filling the streets with permanent art? Yet it's this comparison of sculptures, freestanding objects and artist-designed places and the integration of art within architecture that I'd like us to pursue in the next few sections. So looking at Sculpture being freestanding is, of course, arguably one of the easiest forms of public art to commission, easy, easy in the sense that it is a thing in itself, it's not part of a building or environment, it is in a designated place on the whole, as well as being the most controversial and an easy target for opinion and derision. Yet its role as a signifier, whether it's landmark or gateway, marker or meeting point, is remarkably potent. When formulating plans for the landscaping of towns, the urban designer 
Kevin Lynch coined the generic categories landmark, gateway, trail, and neighborhood, apposite guidance indeed for many public art strategies today. Anish Kapoor's Cloudgate performs two of these categories, being both landmark and a gateway into Chicago's Millennium Park, flatteringly reflecting that city's inhabitants and architecture and its mirrored steel surfaces. Whereas nearby, Jama Plenser, with his crown fountain named after the sponsors, uh, comprises both landmark and place with its twin towers bearing video images of Chicagoans, their lips pursing to form contemporary gargoyles delighting children. The artist invites the public to walk on water, something he can't do as he cannot swim. Um, so that succeeds, in my view, as being both landmark and, and place. Designed for the moving viewpoint and animating the journey along a new freeway, the East Link, Simeon Nelson's Desiring Machine is one of four sculptures, soon to be one of over 12 or more sculptures, I understand, um, which calibrate that roadscape in a very interestingly curated program in Melbourne. Um, Callum Morton is one of the other artists. So signifying regeneration and recognizing the need for icons. In the last 20 years, many cities and development corporations and transport authorities internationally have commissioned artworks such as The Angel of the North by Anthony Gormley, which is both marker and gateway, landmark and gateway. Again, a roadside experience. Its controversy is the first major arts lottery funded sculpture being quickly quelled um, in the wave of its popularity and support to local jobs, skills, and materials. Planning requirements drive much public art in London as elsewhere. And Gavin Turk was duly commissioned by Land Securities, who are major developers for the new developments in uh, the city of London by the French architect Jean Nouvel. A very tight site, uh, only something with an extremely small footprint um, would succeed, and Gavin Turk's rusty nail could be interpreted, according to the artist, as driving the nail in the coffin of commerce from one angle and alluding to Christ being nailed to the cross on the other as you look at it towards St. Paul's Cathedral. So very, two very different interpretations there, potentially. Sculpture's capacity to change perceptions of the space around it is also evident in this recent Fishley Vice Commission, which we co-produced um, with Hans Ulrich Oberist for the Serpentine Gallery in Kensington Gardens. It opened in April. Sourcing two Ice Age granite Ignatius boulders, uh, known as erratics, involved a very long quest eventually sourced in Wales, and the solution to balancing them, uh, one on top of the other, uh, was only achieved after in-depth calculations working with Arab engineers. And tragically, David Weiss, one half of the partnership there, died during this process. So this work, one rock on top of another, in a sense becomes almost like a memorial to their collaboration as it is the last Fishley Weiss public work to be commissioned. A sense of wonder and something seemingly effortless, um, like all good sculpture, 
is, is what I believe this piece to be. And I feel slightly embarrassed talking about this in a country which is full of stunning landscapes and absolutely massive rocks. But this, I can assure you, is a very, very big deal in <laughs> London's Kensington Gardens. These rocks are about 40, 50 tons each. It'll be there for a year, so it isn't a permanent space invader. In the UK, we have our share of kitsch, um, as in every city, including this almost kissing couple at St Pancras Station, a major embarrassment which um, is widely believed should be decommissioned. London and Continental Railways rejected expert advice and simply selected a sculptor they wished to work with. This is what greets visitors getting off Eurostar. Um, whilst in Ilfracombe, um, in Devon, Damien Hurst's Verity, which is a modern allegory of truth and justice, a 66-foot-high flayed woman in bronze, and recently installed on a 20-year loan from the artist to that town, has invited a variety of comments. Damien Hurst has brought public art to a new low, unquote. It would be so much nicer if it was a marine statue rather than a woman with half her fetus hanging out. And when you have an attention-seeking artist in an ambitious town, you end up with this monstrosity, which begs the question, should public art be reasonably tasteful? No, not necessarily, not all the time. It's said there are two kinds of bad art, the slick and the inept. Um, this is surely the former. Uh, but what about the role of beauty in public art? You know, it's a question which has come back onto the agenda and has, of course, been out of fashion for a very long period of time. And it was clause in Renaissance contracts that the artists had to make the work as beautiful as they could. Such were the commissioning motives, the competitive commissioning motives of patrons in, in those days. Um, but there is a sense that much public art is like fast food. It's competing with advertising, competing, competing with architecture. Whereas perhaps more slow burn is an effective aim for permanent artworks, which are, after all, open to interpretation by successive generations over a long period of time. The Olympics, um, as the premier sporting event, have, of course, spawned cultural Olympiads for many years, and Sydney and Barcelona stand out as having been very well-curated programs with realistic arts budgets. Um, London, however, enjoyed a more Catholic approach to curatorship, overseen by a team who moved in from Arts Council England, London, um, curators, in order to, for the program to happen, curators were invited to compete for each project's opportunity as they arose, and each budget had to be raised on a case-by-case -case basis by the Arts Council's team. In the middle of all this, the Mayor Boris Johnson uh, commissioned his own work as his own <laughs> memorial, um, striking a deal with the, uh, with the steel magnate um, Mittal. And a competition was organized, which was won, as many of you know, by Anish Kapoor with his sculpture viewing platform and restaurant Orbit, co-designed with Cecil Balmond. Controversial in the extreme, um, I have yet to hear of any professional curatorial support um, for the work. But, of course, Anish Kapoor has created sculptures of extraordinary beauty previously and since. 
um, which begs the question, you know, sometimes artists get caught in the headlights of a commission and, and maybe the commissioning context was not conducive to the best work having been, having been made. With the London Olympics, we were appointed to advise on um, and organise three commissions, two of which are shown here. Monica Bonvicini's Run, which is sited outside the handball arena. Uh, her choice of a very restrained typeface is at odds um, rather beautifully um, with the fever of the Olympics, this very sort of mute, tight, erect typeface. And the other second major work we commissioned was um, a very subtle and ethereal sense by Carsten Nikolai, who took the colours of the Olympic rings and created this sound wave pattern. But some of the more interesting projects, um, in my view, in the Olympics year for Britain um, were as part of a programme called Artists Taking the Lead. And here we see Alex Hartley and his Nowhere Island, which sailed around the Southwest Peninsula, gathering citizenship as it cruised, landing in different places, a genuinely engaging, popular and participatory commission. There were over 25,000 alternative citizens um, who sought to live on this alternative artist's island. But returning to the move from sculptures, freestanding objects, places designed by artists, in London, spaces are called at a premium, land values are huge, as here, and Pierre Vivant's Traffic Light Tree, um, which has been voted the most popular work in Europe and twice copied, is now in store as the developer is changing the site. And Richard Serra's Fulcrum in Broadgate in London, commissioned in the 80s as, as a site-specific sculpture, is also possibly under threat due to, due to a change in the ownership of the developments. This is widely regarded as one of the most uh, successful permanent pieces in, in London. A very different form of placemaker, however, to that of the infamous Tilted Ark by Richard Serra, which has long been decommissioned and which had a long legal battle and history attached to it that ensued as it was deemed to cut across the natural desire lines of Central Plaza in New York. As stated earlier, some land artists have sought to decommodify the artwork and Tilted Ark was arguably a factor in the move towards more artist-designed spaces. And one of these here, Agnes Dennis, appropriated land in Battery Park City, which was a big land infill project, which was about to become a major development scheme. And she planted it with acres of wheat. Um, she sowed, she harvested it, ground it, the wheat into flour, made bread, and sold it. So it was an early precedent, this was um, late 70s, early precedent for many artists' planting schemes and edible food projects, such as um, one here in Sydney in 2011 by Simran Gill, who's representing, of course, Australia at the Venice Biennale this year, and her laneway project, um, I, Are You Looking At Me?, which worked with planting schemes and was a very engaging and wide participatory project. This new mode of artist-designed place or environments 
um, as typified here by Mary Mist as well, um, also working in New York, was described by Rosalind Krauss as not landscape sculpture, not architecture. In other words, something which it isn't. You know, it's a thing in itself. And Bruce Nauman's square depression is about the formal qualities of space and the vanishing point. And this was designed in the 1970s, but only constructed in 2007 in Munster as part of that 10-year sculpture program. So it represents, according to the artist, the spatial construction of a psychological strata below the level of the vanishing point. But it was an early precedent for that use of sculptural space that was neither landscape architecture nor sculpture. Artists' capacity to explore not only creation of public places, but the layering beneath is evident in the work of uh, Andrea Blum and in Daniel Buren. These columns in the Palais Royal go right down beneath ground level um, where they're joined by a water channel um, about three meters below ground level. And by Marta Pan, one of the early artists working in Paris as part of the Newtown's commission. They, they commissioned some extraordinary artists designed spaces from the 70s through to the 90s where sculpture was really exploded into public space also by the late Marta Pan. So these are, these are all precedents of the ways in which artists took sculpture out into the environment. In the UK, Thomas Heatherwick created this blue square in Newcastle and every so often the paving is seemingly peeled back to form a seat and revealing some video images below ground. So artists had begun to take on such places um, before many architects were interested in what they regarded as the spaces between buildings. And artists have also dealt brilliantly with transitional spaces, with bridges, uh, but also sites such as the High Line in New York, where a local artist and landscape architect successfully campaigned for its survival. And of course, it's a site for a program of um, artists' temporary installations and interventions. And artists designed bridges at Paddington Basin in London. Um, one on the left by Thomas Heatherwick with a bridge which is interactive, his inspiration being a snail shell and a snail curling back into its shell. It unrolls as you're about to approach when it's working, that is. <laughs> but of course, such... Uh, Projects are possible only through collaboration, in this case with, with engineers. But let me move on to artists' preoccupations with architecture, an area of public art that is at best said to lead to more than the sum of the proverbial parts. Um, but many artists have had, of course, a very uneasy relationship with architecture over the years, as exemplified by the 70s work of Gordon Matter Clark's interventions with the his slicing through and boring through buildings. These have been highly influential on artists such as Richard Wilson with his turning the place over in Liverpool, commissioned for one of the biennials there. It's not often that artists get a chance to do this as part of the facade of a building. This, of course, was a building that was um, finally due for demolition, such 
um, with the difficulties in gaining permission. But once seen, they're never forgotten, these projects, regardless of whether they're temporary or not. And we had a conversation at lunchtime about the many things, but the work of Christo and Jean-Claude and the interventions of artists with architecture and the memory that that leaves on a building such as the Reichstag during the 20 years' permissions it took for Christo and Jean-Claude to wrap the Reichstag, the whole political climate in the Western world had, of course, changed. The wall had come down. Um, the political significance of the Reichstag um, as an emblematic building in Berlin had completely shifted. But once revealed again, um, that building would always be seen with the memory of the Christo and Jean-Claude intervention. In recent times, the integration of art in architecture has come naturally to such architects as Herzog and de Meuron, who are Swiss architects who readily um, include artists in their team. So one sees art being commissioned as part of the skin of the building or part of the lighting of the building. And the artworks become classic features. Now this area of work has been um, a focal point of my curatorial practice along with artist design spaces. And the following few examples are where span about 20 years, um, starting with St. John's College in Oxford, although I had worked on art projects previous to that where architects have ceded space to artists and where it's been possible to integrate and collaborate with them thanks to their generosity and willingness to share ideas. So St. John's in Oxford, where a painter designed glass. This is a painter who moved into glass making and then made work which was resonant with the, the concept of rocks and falling water in the architecture a jewellery designer who'd never made anything larger than a brooch before, was commissioned for a gate. So many of these are firsts. You know, one of the enjoyable things in working in the public realm is being able to invite artists who have never worked on such a scale or in such materials before. And some of the best work I find is, is made in that way. And that way, artists don't get typecast for doing a particular type of thing. And in the Marunouchi building in Tokyo, um, which was a new way for Mitsubishi's architects to work, we integrated work throughout the building. Again, this is a first for the artist, a huge glass screen and an artist-designed courtyard. Integrated glass and light work by an Irish artist who went on to represent Ireland at the Venice Biennale. And Two Japanese artists were also commissioned, one of whose work you see here, with one of the building piles buried under glass in the foyer and then cast in bronze on the wall next to it. And the Docklands Light Railway, one of a number of projects which we commissioned, which have been integrated into the fabric. And this is the artist's first work using ceramic as his material, Michael Crabe Martin, who's a very established artist. And Daniela Schoenbeckler, Swiss artist who had an extremely happy collaboration with the architects Dixon Jones and responded to the changing light effects and mirrors um, 
reflections in the area above the view as you walk through this new pedestrian walkway near Piccadilly Circus. This was probably the most controversial work I've organized in my career to date. Uh, may not look it, um, but it involved the commissioning of a, a new window in a 300-year-old listed church, St. Martin in the Fields, which is on Trafalgar Square. It was the subject of a refurbishment, a big renewal project by architect Derek Parry, and we organized a competition that was won by the artist Shirazé Houjouri, um, who had never worked in glass before. Her first design was this one on the right. Her starting point was the veil and not perceiving a face in a veil and the, the warp and weft that a veil is created from. And she somehow wanted to introduce this idea into the cames of the, the structure of the window and then create marks in the glass. And that first design was rejected. This one was accepted. It was controversial until it was installed, and once installed, it was widely well received. And she went on to win the competition for the altar in that church. <clears throat> Creating places through light, sound, and interaction is part of placemaking, and Cities Internationally, of course, have hosted such light festivals, and Sydney has, I noticed Vivid Sydney coming up. That seems to be about both artists and lighting designers. Um, some themes are pure artist design, such as the one in Turin, where different artists are commissioned each time, but some permanent work is brought back into the city centre. So Geneva, Singapore, Melbourne, Durham, Paris, many cities, of course, have such programmes now. And then the role of text work in light is also key. Jenny Holtz's work should be mentioned here, site-specific works which comment on the function of the building and the history of the building on which the text is projected. Light works need not to be huge-scale in work to be effective. We had the opportunity to regenerate a city through light in the city of London. One might not think the city of London needed regenerating, but this street was full of empty properties and offices. And we curated four artist commissions which really animated the street in different ways with Tim Head's work, projected images of shadows, lighting of all the drains along the street, which caused enormous um, delight and controversy in equal measure and a projection onto one of the Christopher Wren churches, which also incorporated sound of summer bird song. One of the delightful works I've come across in Sydney has been um, a bird song piece in one of the, the lanes with bird cages above by Michael Hill. And it's just a joy to come across things that one hasn't necessarily chosen to see, but are highly effective. And sound, of course, has that capacity to delight as, as light does. And in Melbourne, a bridge um, which incorporates light and sound and pattern, a journey across a bridge which is calibrated in the sound of different voices, different chants of people from the different Commonwealth countries that now inhabit Australia, 
commissioned on the occasion of the, the, world, the Commonwealth Games. And the interactive project of Raphael Lozano Hema, where the viewer, of course, is in control of the movements of the projected images onto the paving. Now, looking at the ephemeral and moving away from the fixed sculpture objects into ways in which artists have explored the monument and the memorial, um, these are, of course, historical public art forms which have been undergoing reinvestigation over recent years. And the role of counter monuments and counter memorials is, of course, now key in various programs. Robert Musil wrote in the 1930s in A Man Without Qualities that there is nothing so invisible as monuments that they blur into the public consciousness, was his point, such that we fail to see them. And I'd like just to focus for a moment on the, the fourth plinth project in London. Uh, it's not one of our projects, um, so I can enjoy it um, objectively. <laughs> Uh, it's funded now by the Greater London Authority and by the Arts Council of England. It's worth mentioning this context as a case study as it's become a model for a programme of temporary interventions within a highly charged historical set piece of Trafalgar Square. It started with the Royal Society of Arts and is now run by the Mayor's Office where it is curated. And there is a selection panel and they develop a long list and short list and then the shortlisted artists' maquettes are shown publicly. The public is invited to register its comments and indeed to vote, um, but the public vote does not control the final choice, such as democracy. <laughs> Nevertheless, there's a feel-good factor in the public having been consulted. It was launched on the eve of the millennium with Mark Wallinger's Eke Homo, um, which is in which he presented this very fragile life-size Christ-like figure sighted right on the edge of the plinth. And the program then went on um, to invite Rachel Whiteread and a number of other artists. Rachel cast the plinth on itself, so this is plinth on plinth, which changed, of course, the sculpture does in different lights and different weathers. And Mark Quinn chose to sculpt his friend Alison Lapper, who was a uh, disabled artist. She was born, um, as you see her here, she also was pregnant at the time, so that's how she is portrayed. Mark Quinn thinking that he was the first artist to present a disabled artist in the public realm, but then looked up at Nelson and realized that with his one eye and one arm, <laughs> there wasn't far to look. Then Anthony Gormley uh, proposed the first performative work on the plinth with his one and other projects and this invited anybody to register um, for being on the plinth for one hour to do whatever they liked as long as it wasn't illegal and so the plinth was peopled people slept there demonstrated there read poetry slept danced did nothing recited stories and there was a tremendous public response. There was, however, the most enormous amount of physical kit around to ensure that people didn't leap um, to their <laughs> deaths from, from the plinth. But it was a great exercise in public democracy and in performative art in a public place. 
And then recent, more recently, we've had Dinka Shonibari's Ship in a Bottle, which took Nelson's Ship of Victory and, the, and replaced the flags with these tribal patterns, uh, consistent with his practice. Elm Green and Dragset's Rocking Horse figure is there at the moment. And then next, there'll be Katerina Fritsch's Cockerel, um, of course, the French, the French symbol. Um, this will be one in the eye for Nelson. <laughs> the French lost the Battle of Waterloo. And moving from then monument to memorial, it's impossible not to mention this context, Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, um, which in terms of artists creating places, which are sites of memory, has been incredibly potent because it does involve a cut into the ground and of course a walk past this extraordinary uh, list of names and of everyone who died in the order in which they died and it implicates and reflects the viewer amongst the names of the dead in its polished surface so it has enormous emotive power some people feel this will only its power last for one generation or will it be longer but of course, that's the question that one asks about memorials. You know, how potent are they for successive generations? Um, taking this on board, Jochen Gertz and Esther Shalov Gertz proposed a Holocaust memorial which disappeared in Harburg near Hamburg. And this now invisible memorial is still in existence, but it's beneath the ground, so it's flush with the surface. And it was a process-based work insofar as every few months the column was lowered, but meanwhile people were invited to inscribe their initials against the acts of atrocity in the Holocaust into its lead surface. And there was a call for a further memorial um, once it had disappeared. Much more recently, Janice Cardiff and George Boris Miller created Bahnhof's video walk at last year's Documenta, which was Alta Bahnhof, a video walk designed for the old station in Kassel and took you to platform 13. So the viewer here picks up this little camera and set of headphones and you're taken on a walk and it transports you amongst other places to platform 13, which was where Jews were deported to the camps and very successfully fuses realities between the contemporary reality of the everyday station now and also the history of what had happened there. So past and present are seen to conflate. <clears throat> At the Tower of London, um, we commissioned poet and performance artist and sculptor Brian Catling to mark the site of execution charting the names of royalty and courtiers who lost their heads on that site. Those who were less privileged who lost their heads are commemorated outside the site. So again, this was an alternative memorial creating a new place. And the memory of a place, the memory of a person, you see here, where a group of artists marked the 10th anniversary of the death of their friend Stephen Cripps, who was a pyrotechnics artist, in a work in ice, which lasted simply 24 hours, 
after which the whole thing had melted. <clears throat> and finally, in that category, Steve McQueen, who was the official war artist at the time, commemorated men and women killed in the Iraq war, service men and women killed in the Iraq war, I should say, in sets of postage stamps. And the Royal Mail, who of course was approached, has not agreed as yet and probably will never agree to the release of those stamps. The final strand of activity, and of course this runs throughout as a connective element through all the previous sections, began in its current form, as I mentioned, in the 60s in situation among community arts, and which generated projects at the time in the early 70s, such as Mel Eucalyse's Touch Sanitation Project in New York City, now, Mel Eucalys is still artist-in-residence in the sanitation department in New York after 35 years of commitment to that residency. And her first work, which you see in the top two images, took 18 months. And it involved shaking all the hands of the people who worked in that department and thanking them for keeping New York alive. <laughs> and she has made work since that time um, out of the rubbish, out of detritus, and some of this um, recycled material now is forming new parks and pathways in the parks of New, New York, which you see bottom left. Much more recently, the artist Vic Muniz is working with communities in Rio um, in what is now called participatriot, such the terms, of course, change all the time but also using recycled materials and creating a, a stunning range of installations with communities out of such recycled objects. Using here art historical models, such as images, uh, the death of Mara in this case, as his starting point for the recreation of those works. In Coventry, we commissioned Jochen Gertz, who of course had made the disappearing memorial to create two permanent places in that city, which is the UK's second city, first a public bench. And this was made out of people who chose to have their names and that of a friend or anybody living or dead commemorated on the same plaque, which would then be installed on the back of the bench. So this is appropriating a public space. But the only vandalism that's happened in that program have been um, young couples who subsequently split up who wanted to remove their plaques because <laughs> they didn't want to be seen together. It's a, a very successful publicly appropriated seat. The other work which Gertz made there um, was much more controversial and was an act of reconciliation between Britain and Germany in the sense that the artist himself was German, his own home had been blitzed in the Second World War. Coventry, of course, had been blitzed by the Germans in the Second World War. And Gertz chose to draw out potential hostility um, from recent immigrants' communities in Coventry by inviting them to name their past enemies as their current friends and then to qualify for a glass plaque around the future monuments monuments usually being about the past, of course, they had to have 40 subscribers. 
during this whole process, which took 18 months in negotiation, um, Gertz um, had his project cancelled because 9-11 happened and the city of Coventry was worried that this would incite acts of terrorism. Um, he then went to the city and reconvinced the council that they should reinstate the commission, which they did, and the project proceeded. But also in an act, one could say, of reconciliation, in 2001, the artist Jeremy Miller, I'm sorry, <laughs> Della, recreated the Battle of Orgreave, which was a cavalry charge um, by the police through the miners' community in the village of Orgreave in 1984 during the miners' strike. And his recreation of that battle in 2001 involved 800 or more people, some of whom were ex-police, some of whom were ex-miners, many local people, and some battle reenactment societies. And what he found, of course, was that the memory was still extremely raw of that event having taken place um, during the Thatcherite era. So I'd like to end with one and a bit projects, um, which are the first one of which has just been completed, and that's a project with the BBC in London. And I'll just mention the Radcliffe Observatory Quarter Project in Oxford, working with the university. These are both strategy-led programs, and this is often the way that modus operandi works. With the BBC, um, we were brought in by the architects, um, interviewed by the BBC, and worked closely with a huge steering group um, and developed a four-stranded program of permanent commissions, temporary commissions, artists working on site, and education and community projects. We sought to use Reithian principles. Reith had founded the BBC, of course, with a mission to educate and entertain and inform. So artists were loosely working with those um, aims. And the project, as it, as it stood, was extremely, um, not the art project, but the architectural scheme was very controversial. The original architects were fired. At one point, we were fired also, then brought back in to finish the project. There was a big sweep of change of personnel, and now executive architects have finished the scheme. Nevertheless, um, it went ahead in some form. So you can see the site. It's in the heart of London. It's just north of Oxford Circus, for those who know London. And the little round building there you see in the right-hand image is All Souls Church, which was a grade one listed building designed by John Nash. And then there's a 30s wing on the left, 1930s, and then the rest is new build behind that. So our role, this is a computer-generated image showing the scheme um, as it is intended to look and indeed does now look, where we see the, the three permanence commissions, where we deliberately adopted a very light touch. We commissioned public space, a sculpture emerging from the building, and a light work. And the light work was lighting the new, anew the listed church, just simply with white light, and the whole of the buildings with white light, in a way that was very painterly. We commissioned a sculpture by Jarma Plentzer, who made that work in Chicago, 
<clears throat> which emerges from the roof of the building. It's based on an inversion of the spire of All Souls Church. And it also bears a poem which is about the life of the building. And the BBC asked if this work could be um, used to commemorate news journalists killed on location. So it is a commemorative piece now. And during the whole programme, we commissioned artists to transform the site. So there were a series of temporary wraps. Videos were made. This one from a remote control helicopter. And we appointed photographers to document the architectural changes within the building and also the personnel involved. You see here panorama and Hutton Inquiry, the Hutton Inquiry, which, of course, was carried out into the weapons of mass destruction, so-called, um, that were the reason for the Iraq war. And it was at that point that the BBC changed all its personnel on the team. It was a very crucial political point in the, the whole architectural and public art program. <clears throat> Throughout the project, we involved school children and college students in making work that was responsive to the BBC. And we invited Rachel Whitetree to look at Room 101, which was going to be demolished within the scheme. And Room 101, it was indeed at the end of a long, dark corridor and had been the inspiration for George Orwell's Room 101 in his novel 1984. Um, and, of course, the, those of you who've read that classic will know it was the torture chamber. When Rachel Whitreed saw the room, which was full of vents and pipes, she asked for the, it to be stripped out prior to its demolition, and she cast the whole room, um, but left the, the wounds, as it were, in the surface of the, the walls of the room. And this is the sculpture that was made of the interior of room 101. And this was never to be acquired by the BBC, but we showed it in the Victoria and Albert's cast courts for a year, um, where the museum invited the artists to position their collection of casts around it. So it had some strange um, neighbours, such as Michelangelo's David. <laughs> That's a very interesting project indeed. But then, very recently, and finally, the artist designed public space by Mark Pimlott has just been revealed, and this has been a huge success. There's not a sculpture to be seen. It, is, it imagines you're walking on part of the world and has lines of latitude and longitude, place names, lights and sounds set within its surface. And it started off a whole blog of responses. And the whole project will be opened by the Queen in June, finally. And as a very final mention, a project which has just been launched in February after much consultation, and that's the Radcliffe Observatory Quarter at the University of Oxford, uh, where we have just appointed a site-wide artist, uh, Simon Perriton, and it is the start of a 10-year project which will unfold as the site develops. So a lot of public space. There are refurbished buildings, new buildings, and everything else in between, and that is the, the site. And these are the first images, and I'd like to end with those, which is an alchemical tree 
selected as a metaphor for interdisciplinary collaboration, um, which was an earlier teaching model as practiced by universities centuries ago and has been the artist's starting point for the way he's exploring the site. So thank you very much for listening to this roller coaster of projects and I hope you enjoyed it. Very much, Vivian. I'm wondering if, I mean, I know that there'll be lots of questions and I'm, I'm hoping that you're not too exhausted and that you may uh, be able to take maybe a quarter of an hour of questions because uh, almost every project you put up, I was, uh, I was scribbling down something in my mind to ask you about. So this may have to be slightly controlled and the way we're going to do it is we're going to ask you to put up your hand. I'll point, pick you out and then speak when this mic is about this far from your mouth so that we can all hear your question and Vivian can hear it and also uh, the audio recording for podcast will also be able to hear it. So please stick your hand up. And I'll, and Hi. Um, I was wondering, I mean, there's some wonderful examples of, of works that have gone well, but what could we learn perhaps from some works that haven't worked so well? Like how can we avoid doing that? Is it possible? a really tricky one, isn't it? I was determined to include some examples which I didn't think had gone well. And, and I think the excellence curatorship is a good way forward, for one thing. And I showed you some examples of where it had all gone horribly wrong, where there wasn't a curator involved at all, as well as things that have not been so well curated. Um, I think there's room for testing ideas and People talk about the right to fail, but of course you only get so many rights to fail in public art, <laughs> and certainly the right to fail with a big, expensive permanence commission is not a place to be seen to fail or waste money. Um, so I would, you know, I'd be an advocate of more temporary work. Um, Artist-led projects are a great way forward. I think we as curators should be supporting artists to develop their vision for public sites. And artists are very, of course, incredibly sensitive and are the litmus paper for changes in the public realm. And that's a rich strand of activity. I don't know, I'd be interested to know from you, are you a curator or an artist? Or, um, and, and how you think things could be improved? Hmm. I'm actually a professional placemaker, so I work more on the str yeah. strategy yeah. I guess the interface between the development or yeah. developers, government and the, pub uh, and the public. Yeah. So mm. um, in many cases people think public art is a <coughs> solution for places that aren't working very well yeah. um, mm. and that it's going to be the answer and in those cases often the public art that is delivered I think is, is kind of the antithesis of what people wanted it to do because they're trying to make it do all these other things <coughs> like to make the place attractive to people and to make it feel yeah. safer or to connect them to it <coughs> in some way and then the community actually tends to not like it so much or they'll fight against yeah. it. Well, you touched on a really important point. It's not just the quality of the artist, but it's the quality of the opportunity that they're offered. And I've lost count of the times when I've been asked to bail out a dismal situation. Um, you know, the miserable gable end, <laughs> for example. Oh, an artist can fix that. You know, let's brighten it up in some way which, of course, is not a quality opportunity. 
Um, I'm just wondering, as a strategy person, um, what you do when you um, come across those projects that you're invited to do for you know, beautification or regeneration programs, mm -hmm. and they rather raise those curly issues where people are displaced and some of those things that um, Rosalind Deutsch talks about, mm -hmm. and um, how do you deal with that when <coughs> that um, appears or is relevant to mm. um, <coughs> developing a project where there's big money for and um, yeah. etc. I'm, I'm quite a strong advocate of artists working in residence with communities and I think if a community is going to be displaced for a period of time or indeed hasn't yet come into a site, you know, there are ways of exploring artists' engagement with those communities that can help. You know, I don't think the artist should be called upon to answer all of society's problems in that sense. You know, they're, they're not social workers, but um, they can provide the community with perhaps a vision. Um, they can maybe articulate something visually or draw out strands or be informed by ideas and subjects and histories and narratives from communities that can be really enriching without being, in a sense, tokenistic. You know, I think for, for there has to be meaningful collaboration rather than tokenistic collaboration, and so residences might be a good way forward in that respect. or will be displaced yeah. and yeah. I'm thinking not so much of the artists because probably mm -hmm. most artists if they put their hand up will take that money but I'm thinking from the point of view of when you're developing strategy or you've been invited to um, think <coughs> of a program where you know this these issues are at stake. Mm -hmm. I haven't been in Have quite been that, in that position. I haven't been in quite that position I have to say so I can't speak from first-hand experience there. Um, you spoke briefly about <coughs> the commodification <coughs> side of the art and you mm. also talked about some of the patrons and you listed, you know, mm. at the very start you talked about the Medici and how they were the patrons uh, of that art. But I wonder with public art, you see some public mm. art that gets mm. displayed in corporate buildings particularly mm -hmm. and often it becomes, you know, like you say, that beautification project mm. in, say, KPMG or mm. Macca's headquarters or something like that. Um, how do you put a price on public art if you need to? How does it then get traded as an art piece? Does it get traded? What, how do you answer that question? Is it, is it a case of, with the Banksy thing, for example, where people literally have to come off and chip away at the art to actually sell it? <laughs> well, I think public arts of whatever kind and then there's corporate art which can be shown publicly which is part of a company's way of forming an art collection but making it available and visible to the public and those kind of works, the company of course they've paid for them, they have the right to sell them if they wish but if work has been commissioned for public benefit and is meant to be visible for the public by the public for all time or for a given period of time, um, then that should in effect not happen and the artist's moral rights clause within such contracts should mitigate against the work being moved or altered in that sense. So 
one <coughs> quick follow-up question. Then, for example, the Anish Kapoor thing you showed of with Cecil Bauman, yeah. which you say was sort of somehow a testament to the ego of Boris Johnson. He didn't, you didn't say that exactly, but it sort of feels like <laughs> That's that. That's a good way of describing <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I mean, he does have a very large ego, quite mm. ta much taller than that sculpture, probably. Yeah. But uh, I wonder how then you would see that. Is that a piece of public art? Or is it a piece of corporate art sponsored by the state? <laughs> um, what do you think? I think it tries to be everything. That's probably its problem. <laughs> it's billed as public art, but it's also public as an amenity because it has a function. It's always had um, the function of a viewing platform, viewing tower built into the brief. So it's both public art and amenity and a memorial to Boris Johnson at the same time. <laughs> or monuments, I should say, he's not dead yet. <laughs> Hello, I was wondering about the nature of your work a bit more in terms of I'm really interested in the process of you getting an artist on board. How does that generally happen? I know it must be various in different circumstances, but do you invite particular artists who you've got in mind and, and the owner of the site has in mind? Uh, mm -hmm. Or is it more of an open process? And also, once you've got them on board, how does it work? Is it, it quite a collaborative process between you and the build his owner and the artist, or is it, you know, mm -hmm. let the artist do what they want? How does it work? <coughs> Modus operandi doesn't represent artists. We have a huge database, and we're always looking for new talent um, and we research in the usual ways but in terms of selection procedure which is really the core of your question I'd say the majority of our projects are selected through invited competition we don't often carry out an open call that happens occasionally <coughs> but what we find is that um, the quality of talents doesn't usually come forward with an open call and where they have been successful, it's been the result of us fielding it to a number of artists, both young and mid-career, persuading them to apply. And we found a better success rate through invited competitions, whereby we might research and start with typically a, a, what we call a long shortlist of maybe up to 30 names or even more in some instances, finding those down to 15, say, it's really tight, shorter shortlist, um, and then finally inviting between four and six artists to carry out a commission design for which they're paid a fee and given a brief. And occasionally we do invite competitive interviews rather than commission designs in cases where we want an artist to work closely as a member of the design team. So we don't necessarily want a finished design um, but we want a, a proposal for a way of working. Uh, occasionally, we might invite a very established artist direct, having considered a number of artists before that choice is made. And that happened recently with an established artist who's in her 70s now, Tess Jarry, who's a Royal Academician. And we invited her to carry out a, a scheme in the public realm. It's quite a small scheme, but prestigious one in the West End of London. Yep. Sorry, can I just ask a question just following up from that? Just, um, 
I just wondered then, what advice would you give for an up-and-coming artist who's not on your list? <laughs> Send information today. <laughs> to, to whom? I think my office might be turned up. <laughs> About nine hours behind. <laughs> no, we get artists approaching us all the time. And, you know, be as entrepreneurial as you can. Send it to every public arts agency or curator you know of if you want to work in the public realm. And then start to organize your own projects and stage something temporary and invite people to come and see it and give a party and yeah. No, twenty one I think. I turned twenty one. I mean it's a very very young. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. And that was an open competition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vivian, I just wanted to ask a question about, um, it's, I guess it's a, another question about selection. I was just thinking what an, a very kind of wide diversity of, I don't know, kinds of artists or kinds of approaches to making work there are in the things that you've shown us. But yet there's not an infinite diversity. And so I'm wondering, do you feel like as the person who's kind of commissioning and choosing or mm. part of the team that's commissioning and choosing, does your taste come into it? Yes, I'm afraid it does. <laughs> Can you I, say I how it does? Because that would be really interesting. I think actually more and more as I get older, I become more and more determined to get my way in my <laughs> taste as a curator out there. Um, no, I think you know one of the first big projects I organised in the 80s was one of the National Garden Festival's sculpture programmes in 1986. And that was a wildly diverse programme and some work frankly failed, but I was, I was determined to, for it to be a site of experiment. And I did things then that I, I blush about now, I have to say. <laughs> um, no, it does come into it, um, but at the same time, I recognise that the context in which we're operating are very diverse, and whereas I might be a good old-fashioned modernist at heart, <laughs> um, you know, I'll commission work which is, is not necessarily to my taste. So I exaggerated when I said it's, it's all to my taste. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, for me, the term public art is kind of problematic and I think that's because I would like to think that the work should be site-specific and I think sometimes when work is considered public art, it's just plonked. It's plonk art or whatever. Mm. And I suspect that most of the works that fail um, as public art are more public art than site-specific art. It seems to me that from what you showed most of your approach mm. or most of what you like is site-specific. Would that be the mm. case? And is that something that is very strong in your commissioning and um, mm. strategy with all the work? Very much so, yes. I grew up as a curator, as it were, with the notion of site specificity and with a distinct um, horror of what was then called the turd in the plaza, rather rudely, <laughs> which, you know, the what did they put there for us now attitude. 
of the, the placed object. Um, so I think for me, what was really interesting in this whole field has been the ways in which artists respond to place, um, community, architecture. You know, there are many, many forms of site specificity, as you're aware. And some people talk about site-related or site-specific, for example. So the context is everything. At the same time, work which is commissioned as site-specific, um, sometimes the site changes. And what of the work then? You know, when the site changes so much that the site-specific work ceases to have a site to relate to, then what happens? There are instances like that. But, yeah. Another thing I'd add to that sometimes is that the commissioning body um, is a little bit too, too deterministic about what the artist should be responding to, and they don't mm. sometimes let the artist make a genuine response to the work which compromises the mm. work in that like mm. the brief sometimes is a bit overly specific yeah. and then um, the <coughs> artist doesn't actually mm. aren't allowed to be the artist in a sense. A brief should be an allowing framework that draws out the best of the artist's vision. <coughs> it can be fairly precise in terms of the information it gives but sh it should always allow for um, the fact that it might be screwed up and thrown away by the artist and that it might be regarded as a poetic document to be referred to occasionally. Um, so, <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I, write, I write extremely good briefs for projects, but I'm quite aware that um, they're not always read very thoroughly by artists. Nevertheless, they are there if people want to refer to them. And I, I, going back to that point about it being an allowing framework, the crucial time, of course, as you know... Are you an artist? Okay. The crucial time is the, the conceptual time at the start of the project. And the more you can build in dream time and vision time for the artist to develop their very best idea, the better. You know, commissioners are always in a rush with public arts. They want it there now, and they usually want... I've lost count of the times where... X marks the spot of the sculpture that will be commissioned, you know, to which we say, well, you know, but what about the whole site? Let's think more broadly and let's, let's get some ideas in for different interpretation. So my role is one of agent provocateur to try to... I'm really on the side of the artist, but I'm paid by the commissioner and it's up to me to create the best set of contexts I can for the artist. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm interested in how you've bridged the gap between uh, the sort of many layers of context around public artworks and the public's understanding of them. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously there's many ways to read a public artwork. Do you let the public just, you know, cap be captivated or is there ways that you communicate the meaning. Mm, Is that I'd your responsibility? I'd be very worried if there was one interpretation for, for a work. I think particularly if something's permanent, it's got to allow for different interpretation by successive publics, ones you haven't even predicted over a long period of time. And therefore the work has to somehow have that capacity to unfold its meaning you know, beyond the artist's control, of course, because you know, the artist is letting the work out there and then 
the work has to do its job. You know, having said that, you can be helpful, like, you know, if there is a website where somebody wants to find out more about a work, like the City of Sydney, I spent this morning with the Director of Design looking at some of their projects and websites. But, um, you know, there's information there if you want to find out about it. But I don't think we should be dictatorial or too um, didactic when it comes to interpretation. Do you make the brief available for, you know, for what the artist was was like the, the context sometimes. of the whole environment, yeah. basically? Sometimes. Yeah, okay. And the strategy, sometimes.